Hello, I'm Kirsten O'Brien. Welcome to 16 Summers, the podcast that really only wants the answer to one simple question. If you had to choose between the childhood that you had or the one you're giving to your children, which would you pick? Right, I feel at this point you should start playing like the Hobie's music in the background because we were poor. We used to get up half an hour before we went to bed. It was an improvement. Like I said, that's what you want to be of his father. So I knew his, his shortcomings weren't his fault. You know, there was, there was what he's learned from his father, and he loved us. I do have lots of really fond memories, but they were never they were never around kind of lavish holidays or spending money. It was all about kind of making my own fun, I guess. You, you, you totally blindsided me. I haven't talked about that for 20 years. <laughs> I'm chatting to Otis Dealey today. He started his presenting career on kids' TV channel Trouble. Then I met him when he burst onto CBBC, doing shows like Saturday Mornings Live and Kicking. He's now best known for presenting on The Gadget Show. He's had an unusual childhood story, as we're about to hear, and he now lives with his lovely wife, Rachel, and two kids, Phoenix and Quincy, in Surrey. Whose childhood is better? So the actual question is, would you rather have the childhood you had or the one you're giving your kids? Which seems like a really simple question, but it's a tricky one. So. it's not. We will just meander through and uh, find out what your answer is at the end. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm going to start at the obvious point, which is your childhood. And if you could paint a picture about where you grew up for me, please. Describe the scene. What was the house like? Where were you in the country? Who were you with? Well, um, I grew up, I kind of grew up on the move, really. Um, my earliest childhood memories are with are actually with a foster family so when I was very young my parents they weren't on the run as such but they were changing addresses keeping ahead of the authorities while their paperwork went through and the paperwork was to allow them to stay here and work um and they were only allowed short um tenancies because they didn't have official paperwork so mum and dad moved around london um <clears throat> so east dulwich elephant and castle um tooting and um after a while they they believed that all of this moving around wasn't good for me it was it was unsettling and so i was sent to live with a foster family for a short period of time. And this is something that was called farming. A lot of West African, primarily Nigerian families uh, or people that came over and had um, children would farm their children out to white English families um, until they got settled. So this was either going through college and university or finding a stable job, at which point um, the children would be brought back. Where were your parents coming from? Was that Nigeria initially that they were coming from? No, they were originally coming from Ghana. So my dad's roots are Nigerian, but he was raised in Ghana and my mum is Ghanaian through and through. And um, okay, they wanted to leave Ghana and come to Europe to um, get a better life for themselves and have the ability to send some money back home. So first, my dad 
came over to Germany or went over to Germany and was teaching English there whilst studying uh, maths and accounting. Uh, And he was there for two years, saving up his pennies. And then he flew mum over. After six months, mum decided that she didn't really like Germany um, or the city they were in, um, Hamburg. And so someone suggested they try London. There was a growing community of Ghanaians in London and um, they might like it better, like it more over here. So that's what they did. And they were studying and working, working and studying. And then I popped along, came along unexpectedly. And um, so the decision was made to farm me out to a uh, family in Hemel Hempstead. So this was when I was around a year old. So for the best part of a year, um, I was with um, this family in Hemel Hempstead and my parents would visit as and when they could. Uh, and this went on, like was I say, for about... Was it just you then? No, there was, um, I had a sort of farming foster sister there and the family had been uh, fostering children for decades uh, and, and you know, and continued to do so for a few years after myself and my foster sister had, had stayed with them. Um, so I was about two and a half two, two and a half when, um, I, w- I lived with my mum and dad again. And, um, we, and, you know, and I grew up in, I grew up in South London. So do you have any memories of that time then when you were being farmed as you're calling it? I, I believe I do. Uh, it's really weird. One of my earliest memories, or I've convinced myself that, um, I have a memory of having my nappy changed. Um, so looking up, and um, seeing Mummy Gwen um, changing my changing my nappy, um, I have very sort of bright and colourful memories of playing out in the back garden, which was, um, you know, a, a, as I say, a wash with colour. Um, there were always birds in the garden and squirrels, and, and I remember looking at bugs and uh, creepy crawlies in the garden, but not spiders. I didn't like spiders then. I still don't like spiders. Um, and going and playing out front, they lived on a on a, on a road, an, an open-ended road, but it wasn't that busy. So played out front a lot. And um, I have memories of starting primary school there as well. Um, nothing nothing stand out. I can just remember being, I can remember being content. I can remember being happy. I don't recall any major trauma, although of course I have since had to deal with uh, abandonment issues that arose from being placed with a foster family. Um, But I, I can't recall any majorly traumatic events during my time there. And then every summer, up until I was about 14, um, during the summer holidays, I would go and stay in Hemel for a, about two weeks uh, and and hang and hang out with my quote unquote family, my extended family. And are you still in touch with them now? I am. Um, only my um, older sister uh, remains and my um, and my foster sister. Um, 
all other members of the family have passed away. What, did your parents uh, offer up like money for uh, for food or was there a payment to that family? How how did it work? Because I presume it wasn't through the local council. It wasn't. It wasn't through the local council. So uh, mum mum and dad paid a, a, a small fee um, for for me to be looked after. And, um, and, and that was it. As far as I'm aware, there was no contract, um, or anything between them. Um, this family had come highly recommended through friends of the family. They had done it before they had been doing it for years and it was a safe and stable place for me to, to stay for a while. Usually I do all about your childhood and then move on to your kid's childhood, but it seems like such a a poignant thing to ask now when you had your children, what, how could you imagine giving them away? And how did that then make you feel about you being sent away at that young age? I mean, you've mentioned, mentioned the abandonment issues. Did they kick in when you had your own kids? So I'm just interested in what that impact was and when. Growing up, uh, I I would imagine myself with kids and be comfortable with the idea of sending them back home to Ghana, for example, to live with uh, grandparents, etc., for weeks at a time or or a few months, because that's what other uh, West African families had had done. It wasn't something that I had thought on too much. When I started to talk to my wife Rachel about stuff like that, she was like, "What? What do you mean?" Why, why would you do that? Why would you separate the family? And I'm like, I'm not separating the family. I'm just giving them a chance to um, soak up more of their heritage than I was able to. Because so I didn't get sent back home for, you know, months on end. I don't know the language. Um, I have a very disconnected connection with with my heritage. And I didn't want that for my kids. I still don't want that for my kids. Um. Having said that, now having them being separate from them for that long and knowing the impact it could have on their mental and emotional state, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it. Um, you know, a, a weekend, trying to think about sending them away for a weekend is takes a lot for me. So the thought of them going to stay with family or, or, you know, or going back home for longer than that, a week, two weeks, a few months, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. I find that interesting because, I mean, the thought of anyone taking my kids for a weekend, I'm like, whoa, off you go. Thank you very much because yeah. I don't have those abandonment issues that you're on about. Do you think that is all packed in with that? Yeah, I think, I think it is. And also it's, um, you know, it's, it's my wife's, um, influence as well. A weekend is, you know, a weekend is fine. Um, although, you know, I, I think the two of ours being who they are would be very challenging for anyone to handle both of them, we'd probably, we'd probably send them to different locations each for a weekend. Longer than that, longer than that, guilt sets in, uh, parental guilt. I think even outside of my experience, you know, I can't separate 
I can't separate the two, but I think even outside my experiences as, as a child away from my parents, not being, not being with my kids for more than a few days, just because I want some time feels selfish. Um, you know, you, took an, a selfish endeavor to have kids because ultimately it is selfish. I want kids. I am having kids. But then I think you owe them, you owe them your time. Um, if you've given, if, you know, if you've given birth to them, if you're raising them, you owe them your time. Um, not every minute of the day, 24 seven. Yes, you can have weekends off and you can have you can have time apart it's important to them to learn to be without their parents as well um but weeks and months at a time I draw I draw a line in the sand and you know every other weekend away I wouldn't be comfortable with that either even after a pandemic (laughs) (laughs) have you met other people that had the same experience as you growing up have you had conversations and what did you have any siblings that were with you in this experience my younger sister uh there's seven and a bit years between us she didn't um she didn't go through it she wasn't put through it uh my parents were settled by that point um I haven't it's I've wanted to um dive into it a bit more and unpack it for a number of years and um there have been two films that touch on it one is called farming and the other one is called oh it'll come back to me it has tree in the title and both films address the issues of black boys being raised by um or being raised in in white families and there is uh, an identity issue there there are feelings of abandonment um and a disconnect with the culture they were meant to be raised in i found out last year that someone I knew um, had had the same experience and it was the source of um, it was the source of a huge amount of friction between him and his father Um, and his father unfortunately passed away a few months before um, the pandemic and then, um, and then he passed away too at the at the beginning of it last year, which um, you know, which is fucking rotten. Um, it's coming up to about a year now, actually. Uh, and him and I had spoken about we had spoken about talking about it, um, and he had been approached by a company that wanted to tell his story and explore it and they never got to make it. And I have reached out to this um, organization and said, look, you know, I'm, I'm no Thai, but our experiences um, may have some similarities. So, you know, we should talk about um, trying to finish what you and he started. Uh, So no, I haven't, 
properly had the opportunity to talk to others who have experienced it and what the impact on their on their life has has been and has it affected your relationship with your parents in any way yes and well yes but i i don't really have um I, i don't really know what to compare it to so i I felt loved and looked after growing up in in the house, although neither of my parents were hugely demonstrative um, and uh, rarely, if ever, said, you know, I love you to um, their children. Um, that's very different um, here. Um, I say it to my kids all the time. Um, and... Uh, I um and I still want but you know again quote unquote haven't found the time yet to really sit down with my parents and talk about it I have touched on it um and um I know that they are concerned about how it would look um and I think that is, you know, this is a whole another conversation, but I think that a lot of the time is part of the problem, um, being over-concerned with how others see um, your family, which again is a, is a very, my wife and I take a very different approach um, with, with our two. So I- Parking all of that, which is massive, um, and moving on to when you are in the house in South London, I presume, by then, what is your childhood? What does it become when the farming out stops? When it stops, it is a um, it is a house with is a household with with rules um, and it is governed. Um, with little, um, with little leeway, with little wriggle room by both, by both mum and dad. Um, there were ways in which I was, you know, expected to behave. Um, and this clashed with my personality because all I wanted to do was make people laugh. Um, and my dad is a serious man. He laughs, you know, I share his, I share his, um, taste in comedy actually um classic british comedy i say classic um probably wouldn't get past the censors nowadays um we love a we love a carry on film um so there was you know there was joy and laughter in the house the the you know it, things weren't ruled with an iron rod um i can remember watching a lot of telly um loving watching telly and my parents being concerned that perhaps I was watching too much um I was a bright child at school but talked too much uh and always wanted I didn't teachers said I always wanted to be the center of attention but I didn't I didn't want to be the center of attention I just wanted people to know that I was there um and so you know quiet quips thrown from the back of the classroom to get a giggle um 
you know, I wasn't confrontational with teachers or anything like that. And I was smart enough to get the work done and, and pass, but I wouldn't do enough work to put me at the, I believe I was capable of it, but I wouldn't put enough work in to put me at the top. I didn't want to be singled out. I wanted to, you know, I, I wanted the the tough kids to not single me out and, and give me any trouble. Um, and I was equally comfortable with the, the brainiacs, the geeks, the nerds as well. And so I, I straddled both camps as it were. Um, so lots of telly, um, a very social house. There was always uh, a friend of mums and dads coming round with their family every weekend. In fact, um, other Ghanaian families would, would come round or we'd go to them, uh, and we'd hang out all day, all day, Saturday, all day, Sunday. And every six months there was a, um, they were called the uh, Ghanaian Citizens Union. And it was basically a group of um, Ghanaians who had grown up in neighbouring villages um, who had come over to the UK keeping keeping the culture going. Um, they would come together, there'd be music, there'd be food, all the kids would play together. Um, and those were great. I really, really enjoyed those. We went, you know, different places all over London, different families, um, lots of music, kids being encouraged to dance, plenty of food, lots of laughter and joy. And these were times where, you know, I saw uh, my parents at their at their happiest, their most relaxed and content. Um, lots of smiles, laughter um, and uh, friends. And, you know, I don't have, I don't have memories of, of dark times. I don't believe I was a troubled child. I got bullied a little bit. Um, and you know, that was, that was horrible. Um, but I know a lot of, a lot of adults have had that. Unfortunately, a lot of kids, um, still do. Um, and you know, I was, I was a little bit naughty sometimes, you know, I used to pinch pound notes from my dad's wallet. Um, you know, go out and spend them on, on sweets or get it changed up and go to the, go to the chippy and play on the arcade machines. Um, you know, I, my parents bought me, I had toys, but I rarely had the toys that I wanted. I always wanted a particular toy at any given time, you know, the evil Knievel sidewinder or, um, you know, speak and spell. Uh, and I would get, you know, a budget version of speak and maths or, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a cheap yo-yo or something like that. But I can remember my parents surprising me one Christmas and getting me a bike. Um, and it was a bike just like I wanted. It was a, it was a, like a miniature version of a, of a road bike. Um, and I would go out on, on my racer when all the other kids were, were BMXing. And I was okay with that. I was okay to do that one thing on, on my own. Um, so yeah, no, nothing, nothing dark, nothing traumatic that I can, I can recall. I had a, um, content childhood. I can't remember playing in the snow that much, but I can remember playing out in the sun a lot, um, and playing out till late. What were they bullying you for? Um, so I, I developed a fear of, um, creepy crawlies 
and there was um there was a, a kid, Danny Donovan. You know, you never forget their names. Um and he he used to he used to say that uh you know army ants and bugs and whatnot would would crawl all over me when I sleep and and nip me to death. Um and of course I'd give him the reaction he wanted and he, and he kept it, he kept it going. Um, I did once tell my mum, cause I think I came home one day fairly traumatized by it and she went and had a word with his mum and, um, and, uh, he came up to me the following day, um, calling me a snitch and telling me that it wasn't going to stop. Um, I can't, I actually can't recall how it stopped but I do remember once we moved away from the area, I went back a few years later and confronted him um, and got some some closure. Uh, it didn't get violent, but it was it was about to. And I think the fact that he saw that I wasn't going to back down this time um, caused him to step back. And, um, you know, I was, a- I was able to put it to put it to sleep was your sister around for much of this do you have much of a relationship with that seven year age gap seven years is a long time especially when you're when you're very young so my mum says that we we fought like cat and dog a lot of the time um and mum would say stop throwing your sister around she's not your brother uh and we sort of we were brother and sister but didn't really do much together unless forced together at you know some of these family gatherings and we didn't really do much together until maybe she turned you know five six seven and then I found that she really liked the music that I liked and so Saturday mornings we would uh, we pretty much spend the entire morning wailing over our favorite tracks. Um, me, you know, lining them up on, on vinyl. Uh, cause we didn't listen to the radio. Maybe we listened to the radio on, on a Sunday night for the chart countdown. Um, but, uh, playing our parents, our parents records. And by the age of about 10, 11, I could now start buying my own records and, um, we play them together. So again, really strong memories of me and my sister at the weekend singing a lot, singing very loudly um, and for a good few hours. First record I bought was um, Automatic by the Pointer Sisters. Oh, good choice. Good choice. So what's your relationship like with your sister now? It's it's good. I mean, you know, we are we are siblings who have children of our own. So, you know, we we bond over that. But every now and again when we can um you, you know we we catch up just the two of us um this hasn't happened that much during um during the past 12 months uh but it it was when i went to uni actually um i think both of us did a lot of growing up during that time um my sister became you know she became a a, a teenager at that point and and more grown up as a result and um and and so did I. I did a lot of growing up while I was at uni and I, I came back and we just, we had a lot more in common, not just music. We could talk about, you know, we could talk about grown up stuff to a degree. 
Um, and we had similar views on, on a lot of things. Um, and we, we didn't, we didn't argue. We just, we just hung out together. Um, and we would, to a certain degree, share any problems or issues that we had. Um, and we just became, you know, we just became tighter as, as a brother and sister and we're, we're good. I was going to ask you about university because you mentioned that you are turning into this uh, wisecracking, gregarious, and I've introduced the notion of the singing. It's all pointing towards some sort of show business career. And yet <laughs> off you head to university to do a pharmacy degree. And so was that, I'm wondering, the influence of this this strict parenting that was going on at the time? Oh, absolutely. Um I uh, I never entertained the idea of being an entertainer. Um, I was going to be, uh, I was going to, as a kid growing up, um, I was going to be a doctor, uh, a lawyer, or, um, well, a doctor or a lawyer, basically, because, you know, my my folks, friends, children who were talked about in a proud sense had followed those two paths. And, um, I, I, I had the advantage of being good at maths and also really enjoying sciences at GCSE. I still didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew, but it had to be something in, in, in science and technology. Uh, so I took physics, chemistry and maths at A-level and um, I failed my A-levels. And my initial plan was to do applied chemistry. When I, that's the most disappointed I've ever seen my dad, by the way, when I, um, when I showed him the results of my, uh, of, of my A-levels. That and when he saw my first tattoo. <laughs> When you say failed, what do you call failing your A-levels? Uh, I got an N and two U's, so I didn't <gasps> even get credits. <gasps> yeah. That is, the, the, how did, whoa, I know, whoa, that is nuts. I know. So I passed, I passed all my, well, I passed all my GCSEs without really um, studying for them. And my teachers kept warning me that oh uh, that a levels were a completely different prospect to gcses um and i didn't i didn't believe them i was like you know i managed to get by uh with a bunch of with a bunch of b's uh and c's at gcse so i'll be just fine at a level i've got nothing to worry about um and yeah i flopped in the in the in the high, in, in, in the strongest way. So I had to retake them and, uh, I retook them and was able to gain entry to it's actually was while I was redoing them. I was like, well, this is my chance to start over and, um, obviously get much better grades, but maybe rethink what it is I want to do. And so I developed an interest in pharmacy after going to a, um, careers workshop and because I knew I was never going to do medicine, the course was way too long and I didn't want to have to deal with cadavers. So um, 
I, I, I settled on pharmacy, which I knew I would enjoy because a lot of it was based on chemistry and, um, and, you know, I could become a respected pillar of the community that way. So I retook my A-levels, passed and ended up going to uh, Sunderland University. And uh, yeah, I studied. Yeah, I st- <laughs> that's right near you, isn't it? And um, yeah, I did. I, I did my I did a degree in pharmacy, studied up there for three years. I know you as because we've known each other for years and years, worked together, and you are an up, you are a driven person, you are, you know, a go getter focused. Do you think that moment, that failing your A levels, sometimes when people look back and go, actually, that was the making of me because that that made me pull my socks up? Do, do you define it as that? No, I don't actually. Um, it, it's, it's a, it's, I won't say it's a strange one with me, but with me, I still have that coast element um, to my nature. I, you know, my, most things I do, I will leave till the last minute um, and then just get it done, work really hard for um, a short period of time, or actually normally a longer period of time than was intended to get it done, rather than do a little bit as I go along. That's always my intention. Do a little bit as you go along um, so that there isn't so much of a mountain to climb at the end of it. Um, But still, you know, with my VAT returns and, you know, organising other aspects of my career and business, I sometimes leave it till... I still tend to leave a lot of it till the last minute. I think maybe my defining moment with that attitude to things was when um, when I lost a gig I was doing for Channel 4. And then a few months after that, I lost my Channel 5 gig um, and couldn't find work in television for two years. That was a defining moment for me. Um, and what that what that has helped me to develop is um the the ability to ask for things up front rather than wait and see what i need as i go along because normally by that point it's too late to think more about what i may need during this engagement and then ask for it up front. Um, I still get distracted. I still procrastinate, uh, just as much as I, as I used to. So it's an absolute godsend being married to someone who is an organizational ninja. <laughs> Going back to asking for stuff up front, I'm, I'm interested in, in what you mean, because obviously we're in the same career. What, how, what do you mean? How does that manifest? What- it's like putting your hand up in, in the class, um, there's that, what if I put my hand up? It means I don't know. Well, of course you don't know. You're being taught. So, you know, put your hand up. If you don't know something, it, it, it makes so much sense. And yet in this profession, I have felt in the past that if I gave any um, inkling that I couldn't do the job, then I would lose the job. So 
the personality gets bigger and impressing those people who you are working with more on a on an emotional level if not a a, a professional level um really really uh became really really important and then when i realized well there are some parts of this job that i can't do without extensive preparation um and realizing that the hard way it sort of made sense. It became a no brainer. You can't continue in as competitive an arena as uh, presenting is without knowing your onions or at least having the tools um, to be able to do your job properly. I know auto cue, but that's for another conversation. And that's not part of this one. Um, so yeah, I, I ask for it now. It, it doesn't, um, I'm not affected by it. And if some, if an organization doesn't want to work with me for whatever reason, I don't even overthink it. Now I focus on those that, uh, do want to work with me, are working with me, uh, uh, you know, and, or whose, or whose opinion can, can be changed, can be swayed. What you're getting at here is you did a gig on Channel 4. That was this the gig you're on about. It was a sports gig, wasn't it? Um, it was. Is that what we're so talking about? I was, I was, um, it is, it is. I um, landed the job of being anchorman for Channel 4's inaugural um, coverage of the uh, Athletics World Championships. Uh, these were held in Daegu in 2011. And um, the production company, this was their first foray into sort of live coverage. And this was probably the most high profile gig um, I had ever had my name attached to. So I was working with esteemed athletes. I was going to I was going to be working with esteemed athletes in the in the studio. And we were we had 100 percent coverage of the of the event and the uh, the. the 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 para arm of the um of the of the coverage as well. So we were covering um able bodied and uh and and not able bodied. And um I I just wasn't prepared, Kirsten. I I I fully believed that it would it would be something that would come naturally and it and it would and it would work. But uh my nerves got the better of me and I was getting names wrong and I I I imploded. I mean, there's footage of it online. You don't really have to search um, too hard or long to find it. I imploded um, live on air. Um, Twitter had an absolute field day, um, and I was I was dropped. I was fired from from coverage. I'm there for like the first couple of days, and the coverage was two weeks. Um, and so yeah, I was I was dropped. I stayed out for another few days, but then flew home early. Um, I became obsessed with looking at Twitter for a little while and then realized it really wasn't, it wasn't doing me any favors mentally or emotionally. Um, so I stopped doing that and stopped responding to every negative comment and, um, was sort of trying to, um, it really undermined my confidence as, as a, as a presenter. And I was trying to get that back when a couple of months later I was dropped from gadget show on channel five as well. And so that, that hit really hard, really, really hard. Um, 
I, you know, completely had no confidence in um, what I could do in front of the camera, live or pre-recorded. Um, and for the best part of a year, I was extremely bitter towards um, television uh, and those people that didn't reach out um, while I was, you know, in my in my crisis. And uh, after after a you know a short while, it was apparent that um, with no money coming in, um, we risked losing the house. Um, HMRC started coming after me for money owed as well. Uh, so I had to have a complete rethink of what it was I wanted to do in life. I, um, I borrowed money from a relative to keep my head above water and I retrained as, um, as a fitness professional, a personal trainer and, uh, Rachel and I, my wife and I were all set to sort of get that, uh, fully formed and launch it. When, um, I started getting work again on the corporate sector, I hosted an event for a big electronics firm. It was, it was a year and nine months after losing, um, the job on the gadget show. I keep saying losing after being fired, after being dropped from the gadget show. And, um, the money when you're, when you are working is just so different as a fitness, as someone who had just started in, um, working in, uh, the health and fitness sector, I was making, uh, less, less than a grand a month, you know, around 600 quid a month. And that was very humbling. And then I started working back in television and, you know, I'm by no means earning, um, you know, hundreds of thousands or, uh, any, anywhere near that or, or millions, but there was a stark difference between the two. Uh, and I, I had kept my representation, um, my agent, etc. So I said, is there a way that, you know, we can start to nurture this corporate sector work and I'll still do the, um, uh, I'll still do the, the health and fitness stuff. That's what we were looking into, looking into creating a, a platform that had a, a television arm, an online arm and a physical arm to getting people, um, fit and healthy. And, um, a few months after that, I got I got a call from Gadget Show to to come back to work, and of course my attitude was different. I had to think about it. I gave it a good three or four days um, thinking about it because here was an organisation that had upset me so much um, by dropping me, by showing no faith in my ability during a time when I really, really needed it. Did I really want to go back and work for these people? Um, and we thought about, I say we, uh, my wife and I, we thought about how much of an impact, especially finance, uh, financially, going back to work would be. Um, and I spoke to ex-colleagues on the show, uh, from the show, um, and I spoke to um, ex-colleagues from, you know, uh, my earlier days in in television and decided it was 
a better idea to go back to work but my attitude was very different i didn't want to make any friends i was i was there for the money um and the money was going to um dig me out of a hole pay back the debt that i earned uh the the debt that i owed um and i wasn't there to make friends and that was back in 2014 and truth be told i only started to really enjoy being back at work as a presenter about 18 months ago. Wow. And I always ask this uh, people in our business when you've got your own kids and how you would feel, particularly that rough ride you've just described about encouraging your own children to go into this business. I mean, I have a view that there's not going to be much business left by the time they're of an age for it. Where are you at? (laughs) Haven't given it that much thought, although um phoenix my eldest she has started presenting get getting a she changes the way she talks when the when the phone camera is on her and she'll do stuff like you know welcome to my house and she'll 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 talk like a presenter does she's joined me on a couple of occasions at, at work as well um and has already earned uh, you know, uh, her first pay packet doing um, a presenting gig or a co-presenting gig and uh, and some uh, contributor work. Whatever they want to do, um, I can only offer my advice and support. So, and we are not failure averse. We want our children to embrace failure and to know how difficult uh things things can be you know we're in it to you know build the the most rounded beautiful human beings possible so i think if you give them the right start in life then they will make better decisions but you know we've made crappy decisions and as much as we don't want our kids to repeat our mistakes they will make mistakes of their own um and you know we have to allow that and and this is something i learned during my first few years as a parent we weren't quite helicopter parenting but you know the first scooter i'm 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 not sure the first bike i i, I really don't you know um not 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 too far i don't want you playing with that person you know that stuff has to that stuff has to take a back seat um they've got to fall off their bike to appreciate um that it's well worth staying upright on two wheels um you, you know they've they've got to feel how hot the radiator is to know that it's somewhere that's off limits just saying it's hot it's hot stay away from it only goes so far um so if they want a career in media I'm there to offer what advice I can and and see where see where it takes them but um not nothing's off limits I guess apart from you know illegal stuff and you know dodgy <laughs> shit <laughs> So tell me you've got Phoenix your oldest and you've got Quinn just tell me a little bit about their ages and you're bringing them up not too far away really from where you grew up but it is a little different isn't it it's it's different 
it is it is different um so phoenix is my daughter uh she's just turned five and she has no volume control um and she has uh quite a fiery temper i say the short fuse um but she is um, engaging. She's popular. She's um, thoughtful. She's the first person that w- would compliment, you know, an outfit you're wearing. Um, she wants to be. Uh, she wants to be a, a, a warrior, but a princess at the same time. Um, she loves Lego. She loves role play. Role play so much, too much. Like. I'm always the, well, Quincy, my youngest, he's always the the dog in the family. But then where, where mummies and daddies or where brothers and sisters, where knights and princesses or, um, you know, where, where babies or where, where, where animals, you know, a, a, anything and everything, um, you know, she has a, an imagination that just won't stop uh, at the moment. Uh, but she is... Um, she's she's beautiful to the core um and you know she gets on well with her younger brother for the most part um quincy is a um dinosaur and construction site um vehicle obsessive um we never would have thought that either of our children would have played into um sort of not gender stereotypes, but um, obvious gender endeavors and things that they like to play with because we've tried to present them with, with everything Um, as, as gender neutral as you can, you can get no silly labels on t-shirts or anything like that. Um, But he, he loves construction sites. Uh, We've got one near us, which he, he loves and he is, he's a bit more, he has to, um, he has to jostle for attention because Phoenix has such a huge personality, one that really sort of fills a room and, and takes up a lot of space. Um, so he is, um, he's a, he's a funny little kid. So he has, he's very into sort of slapstick. He is very expressive with um with his face and um he is not he's not as dexterous as phoenix was at that age phoenix does lego and puzzles like years beyond her her age currently um quincy has a shorter attention span and and really wants to spend time with mummy and daddy even after pandemic really loves just hanging out with us he'll you know he'll take a finger and pull us to the sofa to sit down next to him um it's full of cuddles as well loves a cuddle um loves music as well he really does how strict are you i thought we were going to be um a sort of typical family in that Rachel would do the softer stuff and I take care of the the discipline and and that's how we started out um but with a lot of reading most of it on Rachel's part we do believe and it's very difficult for me because it flies in the face of everything I've experienced um we do believe that um raising your voice or having super firm um boundaries doesn't build 
a better person. So when when the children are naughty and they lash out and scream, rather than shouting louder than them and telling them to behave, we're trying to find out what's driving that so that we can talk to them about it. Because as an adult, shouting at others proves that you're angrier or that you've got a louder voice, but doesn't it doesn't garner progress. Um, and also what I don't want is for my children to, they are at the minute, so I'm working on it. I don't want them to be fearful of me to the point where they won't bring anything to me if they have issues, problems, questions. Um, so it is a household that has boundaries. There are stuff that they're not allowed to do and stuff that we won't tolerate. But how we communicate that to our children is very different to um, how we were raised. That really resonates with me, particularly tonight I'm on a parenting course. <laughs> a parenting of mon- multiple. That's a whole right. new world trying not to yeah. shout at uh, three-year-old but um yeah that really does resonate with me what would you say your lowest parenting moment is then do you have one where you're like ah, i played that so wrong yeah yeah um uh a, a smack on the wrist i said i would never i would never raise my hands to to my kids and um lashing out like that is it's uh um that's on you that's got nothing to do with your child um you know, your your child is trying their best to communicate with you in ways that in the limited ways that they have, that something isn't right. Um and their stamina for it is phenomenal. They can keep it going. And it's because we can't keep up um at that level that we're like, that's it. And we lash out. Whereas what we should be doing is taking on that emotion rather than reflecting it back take on that emotion and try to find out what it is try to deconstruct it um and maybe even apologize for it because it might be as a result of something that you've done that they don't comprehend um so that was my lowest point that was a few years ago um and now i've learned to if i can't and and again, I'm blessed to have a team player and it's very rare that I'm on my own with the kids for a long period of time. We can, we can tag in and tag out. I'm not in the headspace to do this right now. Mama, can you take over? And she can do the same uh, with, with me, but we don't do time out on the step anymore for reflection because that is saying, um, I don't like the way you're behaving. So get out take that shit elsewhere. Um, whereas what they want is, you know, or what we want when we're having a hard time is someone to put their arm around us and say, you know, Kirsten, what's wrong? Oh, it's what's, what's the matter? Is there anything I can help with? Let's, let's talk about it. By sending your kid to the stair, to the steps, you are ruling out that form of, um, of nurture, that big need deal with your own feelings other than, you know, in life, learn to identify people who can help you through a through a situation. We also think it's important to let our children know that we are not the perfect parent and that we don't get everything right. And one, so I think my biggest um, victory 
as a parent is, and again, this is something that I'm still working with, I'm still learning to do, is apologising to your child if, you know, when you realise you've done something wrong. Um, that's huge. Um, my parents would never apologise to me. The parent isn't wrong. You know, children should be seen and not heard is bollocks. It's bullshit. Um, you know, if we want our children to improve their lives and the lives of people around them and make it a better world, then we have to do our bit to raise them. And that's not just shoving food down their mouths and putting a roof over their heads. Will you take them to Ghana? Yes. Uh, and I want to take them younger rather than older because I don't want it to be the culture shock for them that it was that it was for me. Um, but one of Phoenix's favourite dress is um, has a kente pattern. So a kente cloth is um, traditional Ghanaian um, cloth that lots of different uh, outfits can be fashioned from. Uh, one of Phoenix's favourite is, is that they absolutely adore... Um, their grandparents um they know a little bit about ghana where their grandparents are from and uh yeah absolutely and it will be a journey of discovery for for all of us because all i've ever done when i've gone back home is go to the village my parents were raised in and that's it and ghana has so much so much more to offer beautiful coastline um great tourism history that you know is connected to some of our um to some of our more painful past. Um, there's a lot there. So I'm very much looking forward to, you know, taking the family there at some point and, and soaking it all up. Did you go on holidays as a kid? No, a holiday was going back home to, to Ghana. Um, I, we did a day trip. Um, we did a family day. I say family. It was part of the, um, uh, Ghanaian Citizens Union I told you about earlier we did a day trip to American Adventure theme park um, <clears throat> and I met I remember meeting a girl there who I thought sounded like she was from Coronation Street she was from Halifax I mean the accents are so different it's ridiculous um, and I can remember a day trip to uh, <laughs> to Butlins in Bognor Regis but holidays they just, they just weren't a thing. We couldn't afford them. We couldn't afford them. And uh, so that was a, a, a huge, that was a huge thing going into work. I didn't take, I didn't take days off. If there was a date in the diary, then I could, I could work on it. And it wasn't until I had a really hellish summer working for the BBC. Um, there was no, there were, there were no breaks. And I got to a point where I, I actually felt I couldn't do any more work. Um, and so had asked for a couple of days. I'd, I'd asked for it a, a, a while before and they said, no, you have to keep going. And I can remember literally running into an open field and losing my shit for about three minutes and then coming back and finishing it. Uh, and that was at a point where um, I really started to develop um, stress stress um psoriasis on on my scalp and you know my scalp would itch and my hair would fall out um and that's something I still live with now like it's very rare because I'm learning to manage it but when I get stressed losing keys for example I can't find them my hand goes to my scalp and I start scratching um and uh but but going taking a break going on holidays was such a rare thing until I met 
until I met Rachel, who had grown up in a family that took regular holidays. And I would still only go away for like a week, but keep my phone on because I didn't want to miss a work opportunity. Um, It's only been in the last five or six years that I can go away and completely relax because there are more important things than work. How is it and how mindful are you of being a mixed race family? Uh, Incredibly so. Um, So much so that um, the makeup of uh, children in Phoenix's primary school was a major consideration before we made our choice. Um, We looked at various, um, I can remember when we were looking at um, let me think now, this would have been nurseries and we went to one not too far from here and, um, very clean, uh, very modern and incredibly engaging, um, uh, headmistress or, you know, manager of, of the nursery facility. And, um, she was white and blonde. Uh, and we went into the classrooms and in every classroom was just white kids. Um, and when we went into one classroom, I can remember, um, the head teacher saying, um, boys and girls, this is, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Dealey and they're hoping to send their child here. And these eight heads all turned around together and said, good morning, Mr. and Mrs. Dealey. And they were all white and blonde. And that was my cuckoo, what was it? Stepford kids moment and I was like we can't we can't do this um we really have to go somewhere to where where our children can see a nice broad mix of um children yes we're in an area that's predominantly white that's that's fine um but I don't want my kids um growing up feeling they are the only ones. Yes, it's great to be unique, but I want them to see others that um, look like them, not just look like their mum. Others that look like them, look like their mum, look like their dad. And we made our choice by moving out of London that this was going to be more challenging. Um, But we engage with the school in terms of um, the literature they have and visually how um, their curriculum is represented. And they've been very um, receptive of that. And, you know, they've changed a lot of books in their library um, and they talk more about um, events that affect all the kids positively and negatively, not just that affect, um, you know, white English kids. And um, that's going to be very important going forward. I am very aware of it. I'm more aware of it than I ever have been. I have been um, exceedingly aware of it since, you know, uh, Rachel and I got together. And there are um, there are and will be challenges ahead. Um, but as a family and as a community, actually, um, we will we will face them and navigate them. We're approaching me uh, asking you the question and making your decision. I've got two final bits. Worst bit of your childhood, first of all. What do you think the worst part of your childhood was? It's a difficult one because I think the worst part is inextricably tied with with one of the good parts. Because 
the the worst part is the is the abandonment issues that I've I've had to live with as a result of being being farmed. But I you know I had or I have good memories of my time there. I wasn't mistreated. Um, I wasn't um, I wasn't singled out by the family I I lived with. But I was uh, an anomaly at the school. I was the only one at at the school, um, and I think that those experiences impacted my connection with my own my own culture. So that that's probably the worst, you know, not getting my head stuck in railings in a you know multi story um, building, or you know getting caught almost setting fire to my neighbor's house. Those aren't the worst parts. I think the worst part is, um, is the legacy that being farmed out has, has left. I, I can't go past the setting fire to your neighbor's house just for a moment. Is that, is that a real, is that a real experience? A, a, a real, or is that just a random yeah, example? It's a, it's a real thing. Uh, boredom is, um, I think, I think it's written somewhere that, uh, <sighs> Boredom is the mother of something or other, something great, but not for me. Uh, as a kid, when I got bored, I did silly stuff. So uh, when my parents used to, well, dad used to work nights and mum used to have a really early shift at work. So I was, uh, I would pop next door early in the morning and wait for um, my friend's family to sort of wake up and get ready. And then we could all go to school. Like I'd, I'd literally sit on my own for and at, uh, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes and no TV. There was no TV. It wasn't allowed to put a TV on in this household. Um, and so I would play with their, I'd play with their fish in the fish tank, like pull the fish out and watch them flip before throwing them back in. And uh, Patrick's dad was a smoker and they had this sort of synthetic fur, fern tree. And I can remember picking up the lighter and just singeing one of the branches uh, and thinking, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't burn. It just singes. And I was about to put the lighter down. I thought, well, let me try just one more. And I lit it and it just went up in, in flames. And as quick as it was on fire, it went out and it just left this plume of smoke. And of course I shat myself. And that was the time Patrick's mum chose to come downstairs uh, you know, and in her thick Irish accent, she was, you know, like, mother of God, what, what what have you done? What have you done? And I I am blank from those words up until getting smacked uh, after arriving home from from school for for doing for for doing that. And um, I wisely chose not to play with with fire um, after that. <laughs> Uh, I don't go anywhere near it. <laughs> oh, my word. Uh, I haven't had a chance to touch on your acting career, which is probably just as well, given that crack at an Irish accent you did then. Um, final <laughs> question, best bit. <laughs> best uh, bit of best your bit. child. The freedom. Uh, you know, I, I touched on it earlier. I spent, we spent three years living on an estate in Elephant and Castle. And it was quite a large estate and nothing, nothing existed outside of it. Um, school, I'm trying to remember where my school was. School was just outside, just outside the um, estate. 
but nothing else existed outside it. And there was a there was a green there that was raised, <clears throat> and there was a slope on the on the green and a slope that you could cycle up really really quickly and get some air and land on the green so we'd play a lot there we had a a park on site as well which had a dinosaur climbing frame so it was like a diplodocus climbing frame um and you know we played on that and we played knockdown ginger and we played um uh tin tin can tommy and we we there were sometimes abandoned flats that we would climb into and and have adventures and there were garages that we could run over you know like run over the roofs of and i can remember having a really really action packed time um during those 3 years and when we moved from elephant castle to tooting um it was still fun, but things started to get a bit more serious. Like I became aware that I was, you know, it was a more mixed school. Um, but I became more aware that um, the skin that I was in was, was a problem for some people. Um, and so my behavior changed uh, as a result of that. But the the best part were the two to three years I spent on, on Meekin Estate growing, growing up. Brilliant times, brilliant times. Would you rather have the childhood you had or the one you're giving your kids? It's really difficult. It's really, really difficult because there are there are such fantastic. I have such amazing memories um, as a child, and nothing, nothing too traumatic. But there is, there was trauma as a result of my experience or experiences i for a while um couldn't um couldn't commit 100 percent to um my relationships um and would always look for a get out before i got dumped because being dumped led to being dumped was like being abandoned um and i hated how that felt <clears throat> and after experiencing it a couple of times i must have said to myself that's that's never going to happen like if if i get bored or i see a you know i see a way out or an opportunity to leave a relationship i'm i'm gone um and so uh had some relationships where you know i wasn't altogether honest and was disrespectful to uh, the women that I was seeing, uh, sometimes more than one at the same time. And, um, as I unpacked all of that, um, I realized that it, it grew from a fear of being left alone. I would not farm my kids out. I would not give my kids over to anyone unnecessarily. Um, and we are doing our best for our kids to sort of get in the dirt and enjoy being outside. And, you know, we have a great group of friends as well as my parents have. What they will miss out on is that London, that, you know, I, I, I would really like my kids to have um, the street savvy 
that comes with growing up in London or in certain parts of London or a big city, shall I say. We're in a town out here. Um, no regrets, but it is different. Uh, they have wider spaces to play around in, which is good. So I think I am going to continue with the childhood that they are having and not not give them mine, not swap them, not swap theirs for mine. There are elements that I will try to introduce into theirs that I had, but um, they're good. I think they're doing all right. They're doing better than I, I did. Or are they? I don't know. I don't know if they're doing better. Are they doing better? I'm not swapping. You're just a man <laughs> arguing with yourself now. I know, I know, I know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not swapping. You've been listening to 16 Summers with me, Kirsten O'Brien. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in the usual way. And we're always happy to hear your comments using the hashtag 16 Summers. 